Well, let's start off today with a fascinating piece of science. There are more than 100 million brain cells in your gut. What that means is your gut instinct, that butterfly feeling, in science, your stomach is called your second brain, and that gut feeling tells you to pay attention. Something else interesting is your heart also has millions of neurons, and research shows that the heart reacts more quickly to circumstance than the brain does. Even in scripture, the, the seat of the emotions or the soul is referred to as part of the stomach, and Jesus often talks about the heart. What we can say, though, in our own experiences, everybody knows in their gut that things are not the way that they should be at this time in our history. We're going to look at some honest answers, though, on why things are the way they are and some things that we really can do during a time such as this. Tony Robbins says, be careful what you sentence yourself to. What he's talking about is that we craft our experiences by our words. And, you know, you sometimes you just have to make a, a minor adjustment to changing your words. Maybe instead of saying things like, I'm nervous, use words like, I'm excited. Maybe instead of angry, use words like, I'm curious. Be careful what you sentence yourself to. If somebody has a marriage and there are problems and they say things like, my marriage is falling apart, that's very different than somebody that says, you know, my marriage needs to have some changes that I'm very confident we can make. So be careful what you do sentence yourself to. You know, we can choose to say, things like I, I am maximized rather than I am overwhelmed. It's important that we stop and be careful that we say things that are in line with how we want things to be. Again, leadership is to see things as they are, but not worse than they are. Let's start with Ephesians chapter 5, verse 19. Instructions by Paul who says, speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. One way to change the sentences that you use is to use the book of Psalms. Use the book of Psalms to pray, to sing, to give wisdom, to find inspiration, to declare things over your life. You want to see a psalm of prayer of a man who was going through a time where he felt overwhelmed at circumstances. He felt overwhelmed with frustration at people. Read Psalm 35. We won't go through it today, but you'll see in Psalm 35 that David had is dismayed at the people around him and the behavior that he sees. And so here's somebody with God's own heart and how he prayed and put into words, maybe things we might struggle to put into words. Read Psalm 35 and you'll see somebody there on the on the raw edge of human emotion sharing from his heart prayers and declarations and concerns, but also proclamations of worship. Take a time to read through Psalm 35. Let's start with a few questions here from Tim Clinton, though, and stop and think about these answers for your life right now. Number one, what is right with my life? What is not? Number two, what needs to be changed? Number three, what am I tolerating in my life that is holding me back? What's right? What's not? What needs change? What am I tolerating? Again, we're going to look at honest answers about things going on today in our culture and the way people are behaving. What are some honest answers that we can find and put into practice, some action steps that we can do? Let's start with Luke chapter 11 as we consider where we are in our country and also individual lives where people have some struggles and some questions. Luke chapter 11, just look at one verse out of the Lord's Prayer here. Jesus said, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins. That word forgive there is different, what he says here in Luke, than what he says when he teaches the Lord's Prayer in Matthew. Again, Jesus probably taught this prayer many different times, many different listeners. And when he taught it in Matthew, he uses a word to say forgive us our debts. 
Here in Luke, he says, forgive us our sins. In Matthew, debts can be financial debts or obligations that we have to somebody else. We might be indebted to them to, to say thank you or to repair something that was broken in our relationship. Maybe the debt is something that we need to do to correct a wrong that we did to that person. Whatever that debt is, that we can make it right. In Luke 11, when he says, forgive us our sins, we understand very well what he means by sins, but the word forgive there, this is quite fascinating. The literal meaning of forgive in Luke 11 means to untie. It means to untie. Think about that. That's a powerful metaphor that may really be the one thing that you need to hear today. That Jesus says to you and to me, when you enter into prayer, be sure to pray, God, would you untie me? Would you untie me from my sin? Would you untie me from my burdens? Untie me from things like hatred and anger that bound me up. You know, the fastest way, again, to free yourself from the enemy, all the associated, all the associated negativity in the world, Jesus says, forgive or, or pray that you untie. Untie the things that bind you, and then you'll find yourself free, free indeed. I love this here by R.J. Lachance. He says, let your future self make all of your decisions. What he means is if you were looking back a year from now and you knew then what you need to know, what would you tell yourself today about decisions that need to be made? You know, we see some things going on in our world right now where people are not thinking past the moment. If they were to stop and say, what would your future self tell you would be the right thing to do right now? People are not thinking about the, the long-term consequences, whether it's behavior in our culture or perhaps things in people's relationships. You know, as Tim Clinton shares, God answers prayers either now or wait, but regardless in any circumstance, to not be afraid. Let me share somebody that knows what it is to be untied from burdens. I'm sure most people know Joyce Meyer. She's a, a very, very... Uh, Popular minister on TV, on the radio. She's written countless books, has a, just a, a great ministry. But Joyce Meyer is not her name. In fact, she's never shared what her actual name is, and there's a reason for that. As she has been open to share her, her parents, especially her father, they were incredibly abusive. In fact, they were so abusive that as soon as she was old enough, she left the house and didn't look back. She moved away, got married, had children, started this ministry, gave her life to Christ. And then as her parents got older, she found out that they had some physical needs as well as some financial needs. And she felt compelled to do something about that. And she told her husband, who was very opposed to this, I think we should move back to town where my parents live so that I can provide for them. And he said, that's a horrible idea. He was very opposed to it, but they did that very thing. And as she would share going back there, helping them out with needs that they had. Eventually, her father repented, gave his life to Christ, and before you know, a large crowd, she had the privilege to baptize him. But I love this. She was asked, you know, what was one thing that really got you through the terrible abuse? And she said, Isaiah 61.7 became this rock that she held on to. And Isaiah 61, 7 says, instead of your shame, you shall have double honor. Instead of confusion, they shall rejoice in their portion. In their land, they shall possess double 
And I love how it ends. Everlasting joy shall be theirs. That's a new sentence for your life to say, you know what? I'm untied from my past. I'm untied from guilt. I'm untied from shame, untied from sin. I have double honor in Christ. I rejoice in him and he gives me everlasting joy. That can be yours right now. If, if it's not yours, you just simply have to ask for that in Christ. There's a difference again to recognize people that talk about things, but those who really live out that faith. And if you're in a place right now where you need to stop and pray, you know, God, I want to be untied from this. He honors that prayer and he offers in the place of those burdens, things like double honor, rejoicing, everlasting joy. Let's look, let's look at another very well-known statement of Jesus, but ask, what does it really mean? Matthew 22 we all know the story. The young man says to Jesus, what's the most important commandments? He says, love God. And then verse 39, love your neighbor as yourself. But really, the question is, what does that honestly mean? What does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself? In our culture, we use words like love to mean things in, in songs or in poems or in movies to mean this, this great emotional attachment. Is that really something Jesus is calling us to do? Because neighbor, he tells us, is anybody doesn't have to be somebody that you know. And many people struggle to have love as a feeling for people in their own family. So is he really calling us to love a stranger, the way that we use that term in our culture? Chris Account said it like this, never leave the scene of a decision without scheduling in a commitment that guarantees fulfillment. We're going to look at what Jesus meant here, and we're going to keep talking about being untied and trading that for double honor, but you never leave the scene of a decision without a commitment the guarantees fulfillment. And what she's talking about there is right now we're going to look at some things here today that there's going to be some questions about what do you commit to? What do I commit to? Well, then what's the next step that you and I need to, to commit to today before we leave this morning, before we leave this day, before this evening even, if you think about what we talk about throughout the day. So for instance, if you were going to commit to being healthy, then you would never leave this decision point of, that without making a specific action step, maybe you'd say, by noon today, I'll sign up for the gym. Or by two o'clock today, I'll clear out the junk food from my house. So when we're talking about a spiritual thing in a culture like we have right now, where people are looking for answers desperately, what's the decision and what we schedule in to your life? What's the commitment that'll guarantee that decision's fulfillment? As Kyle Maynard said so well, it's not what I can do, it's what I will do. Second Timothy 4, verse 18, final letter that Paul wrote, he wrote from prison, and he knew he was facing the death penalty for sharing the gospel. And here's what Paul says, the Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. Paul writing to Timothy saying, look, God is going to rescue me, whether he rescues me literally in this moment out of this prison or literally into his hands in eternity. But he says, I, I rest in that because God is going to rescue me from every evil attack and he'll bring me safely into his kingdom because that's who we live and serve. The difference, though, is it's not what I can do. It's what I will do. That's why Larry Kreider, I love what he wrote. He says, I have a missionary friend who years ago was strung out on drugs and far from God. As a young man, he gave his life to God and went on to become a missionary in Asia. And I asked him, why do you think your life turned around so dramatically that you never wavered? He didn't hesitate. 
and said, because I totally surrendered. That surrender can start with saying, God, untie me from whatever it is. So here's some pretty uh, interesting things I hope you'll hold on to as people talk about answers for our culture today and the upheavals, fears, and doubts, but culture in general. Let's look at a couple popular answers here. Consider this. The three most valuable brands in the world are Amazon, Apple, and Google. Amazon's worth $315 billion. Apple and Google both worth $309 billion. You take the 400 richest Americans, their total net worth is $2.9 trillion. So if you took the three most popular brands, most valuable brands, and the 400 richest Americans for every red cent, you'd come up with just under $4 trillion. Annual spending by our federal government is over $4 trillion. That doesn't include state and local government. So when people say, I have an answer, let's have more money or maybe raise taxes or take money from the rich. Well, if you did that, you wouldn't even cover one year of the budget in the United States. We need sustainable, real answers based on the bottom line. It is truth in Christ. Listen to this. It was written by John Swinton. When people say maybe there's answers within the media, and maybe that's where to look. Listen to what John Swinton wrote. A journalist at an awards dinner where he won several awards for his work as a journalist. He gave this speech and said, There's no such thing in America as an independent press, unless it's out in a country town. You are all slaves. You know it. I know it. There's not one of you who dares to express an honest opinion. If you expressed it, you would know beforehand it would never appear in print. I am paid $150 to keep honest opinions out of the paper. Others of you are paid similar salaries for doing the same thing. If I should allow honest opinions to be printed in one issue of my paper, before 24 hours, my occupation would be gone. The man who would be so foolish as to write honest opinions would be out on the street hunting for another job. The business of a New York journalist is to distort the truth, to lie outright, to pervert, to vilify, to fawn at the feet of mammon, and to sell his country for his daily bread. You know this, and I know it. We are the tools and vassals of rich men behind the scenes. We are jumping jacks. They pull the string and we dance. That's John Swinton. Here's the thing. He gave that speech in 1880. Thank God for honest journalists out there who are serving Christ. But let's be honest that many out there are very clearly represented in John Swinton's words. That's not the answer. What is the answer? You know, Bradley Dean said it like this. It's easier to fix a broken man than a fatherless man. What does the world need right now is men and women who have found themselves by the grace of Christ untied from sin, fear, burdens, set free in him, knowing double honor and godliness and joy and courage, stepping forward and shining the light into the dark places, living what Jesus said here, Matthew 22, when he said, love your neighbor as yourself. The question again is, what does he mean by that? When he says, love your neighbor as yourself, he's quoting from Leviticus chapter 19. 
Moses is giving a message. And in Leviticus 19, Moses is reviewing some things he said in Exodus 20. And in Exodus 20 and in Leviticus 19, the context of love your neighbor as yourself is the Ten Commandments. The first five commandments are about our relationship with God. The last five are about our relationship with people. What does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself? What does Jesus say? What did Moses say? Things like, you know, don't commit violence against others. Don't try to tear apart somebody's family. Don't steal. Don't lie. Don't be somebody that's caught up in, in coveting and jealousy. You know, love that is spoken of in the Bible, it's an outgoing concern for other people, though, but it's demonstrated by our actions. And it's not about feelings. You may not feel, I may not feel love the way we use it in our culture and emotional attachment to somebody. Anybody, though, can choose to say, I'll refrain from breaking these commandments. Rather, I'll love my neighbor as myself by not being violent destroying their family, stealing, lying, being consumed with jealousy and covetousness. Here's some ways to put that into practice going beyond the Ten Commandments as Jesus expanded on what it meant to serve and lay down our life. Larry Kreider says this, I have a friend who parks his car outside the homes of people that struggle spiritually. He often does this in the middle of the night and prays and fights for them in the spirit. He's learned to walk in the power of Christ that we can experience each day in intercessory prayer. It's said of John Wesley's students that in prayer, if they got tired, they would take a towel and soak it in cold water and then wrap it around their head or their neck so they'd stay awake and be alert to continue to intercede on behalf of the community they surrounded them or the, the people they came into contact with. And you and I can say, you know what, God, here is what is wrong with my life. Here's what's right. Here's what needs to change. Here is what I'm tolerating that's stopping me. And maybe turn to Psalm 35 and begin to pray for your community, your hometown, your family, your friends, the people you come into contact with. Because our life in Christ, Isaiah 56 says, looks like this. I'll bring them to my holy mountain and bring them joy in my house of prayer. And my house will be known as a house of prayer for all people. Bring them joy in the house of prayer. Following what Jesus said. Loving other people as ourself. A willful act by refraining from certain things that cause them harm. But also by taking action in a positive way to serve people as salt and light. And it starts again by just saying, you know what, God, in my prayer today, would you untie me? Untie me from fears, hurts, the past, sin, rejection, whatever it might be. Here's another person, probably a lot of people know Stormy O'Meriton. Also has a, a ministry that's pretty well known, has written a lot of books. Let me read about her experience of being untied. She writes, you are worthless. You'll never amount to anything. My mother said that as she pushed me into a closet underneath the stairway and slammed the door. Stay in there till I can stand to see your face, she said. The sound of her footsteps faded as she walked down the small hallway back to the kitchen. I wasn't really sure what I had done to warrant being locked in a closet again. 
I knew it must be bad. I knew I must be bad. And I believed all the negative things she had ever said about me, that they were surely accurate. And after all, she was my mother. The closet was a small rectangular storage area under the stairs where the dirty laundry was kept in an old basket. I sat on top of a pile of clothes and pulled my feet in tight to eliminate the possibility of being touched by the mice that periodically streaked across the floor. I felt lonely, unloved, and painfully afraid as I waited in the dark for seemingly endless amounts of time, waiting for her to remember I was there or for my father to come home, at which time she would make sure I was let out. Either event would mean my release from the closet and that devastating feeling of being buried alive and forgotten. As you can probably tell from this one incident, I was raised by a mentally ill mother, and among other atrocities, I spent much of my early childhood locked in a closet. Although certain people were aware of her bizarre behavior, her mental illness wasn't clearly identified till I was in my late teens. During all my growing up years, my mother's extremely erratic behavior left me with feelings of futility, hopelessness, helplessness, and deep emotional pain. So much so, but by the time I was a young woman, I was still locked in a closet. This time, the boundaries, though, were emotional, not physical. I was walled in by a deep, ever-present pain in my soul, which expressed itself through acts of self-destruction and a paralyzing fear that controlled my every breath. Years later, I sat in front of Marianne, a Christian counselor who told me I needed to forgive my mother if I wanted to find wholeness and healing. Forgive somebody that treated me with hatred and abuse, someone who has ruined my life by making me an emotional cripple? How can I? I thought to myself, overwhelmed at the prospect of so great a task, I'd already confessed my sins. Now my counselor was asking me to forgive my mother all in the same counseling session. Marianne explained, you don't have to feel forgiveness to say that you forgive someone. Forgiveness is something you do out of obedience to the Lord because he forgave you. You have to be willing to say, God, I forgive her for everything she did to me. I forgive her for not loving me. I release her into your hands. As difficult as it was, I did as Marianne said because I wanted to forgive my mother even though I felt nothing close to that at the time. God, I forgive my mother, I said at the end of the prayer. I knew that for me to even be able to say those words, the power of God must be working in my life. And I felt his love at that moment more than ever before. Jesus calls us to pray, Father, untie me from my sins, untie me from my burdens, untie me from the overwhelm, untie me from my fears. Our culture is dying for men and women to stand up in Christ, shine a light into the darkness by having character, treating their neighbor as they would have themselves be treated and saying, listen, I can show you the gospel truth where the God of all things will give you double honor and joy in his house. You simply have to reach out and receive that. In a world of chaos and fear and upsets and rage, we can be an example or we can be a warning. And Jesus calls us to be that light, not hidden, but set on top of a hill. Perhaps Mary Slosser said it best. A missionary to China, as we close, she simply stated, I sing the doxology and I dismiss the devil.
May we find our life truly resting in Christ, following after him, singing the doxology, and dismissing the devil.